Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about the tensions on the Korean Peninsula. We're going to talk about the death of the WHO's pandemic treaty. And we'll end it off by talking about Vladimir Putin's plans for Russia in the 2020s. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. So, Boris Johnson remains in power after a vote of confidence. I almost said no confidence, but he's there because of the vote of confidence. He succeeded in that vote, and now he's going to remain in power in the UK Parliament. The environmental minister of the Dominican Republic was shot and killed. 18 dead in an Islamist attack in Congo. It seems the the spillover from the Great African War has even reached them. Although, the main theater of, of this Terrible conflict is up in the north, north of Nigeria, uh, along that strip of line, line that strip of land, from Mauritania through Mali all the way through Niger to Chad. It's roughly the area we're looking at. So more violence in Africa as nations fight against Islamist militants. Wildfires have broken out near the Greek capital of Athens. Uh, I remember something like this happening last year, although I'm pretty sure they just got smacked with a wombo combo of multiple different natural disasters, and it wasn't by Athens, but it was in other parts of Greece, so I guess, uh, I, I guess instead of hurricanes every year, the Greeks get wildfires, but then again, here in the United States, we get that too, in California, it's because of, uh, improper forest management. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's to protect an one endangered species of owl, which is why they don't do controlled burns, uh, which is what they should do and what they could do if they wanted to stop having wildfires every year. I'm, I'm talking about California, not not Greece, but uh, maybe that's what Greece needs to do too. But you know, I'm, I'm not quite as knowledgeable on Greece, although it's a suggestion, you know. Uh, but I, I guess people like having problems, so we we, we don't get. Real solutions. <laughs> uh, speaking of U.S. states, though, the U.S. state of Ohio is now going to allow the arming of teachers, uh, and they they have to go through like a week of training, most likely gun safety training, so that they don't just go waving the thing in front of the kids' faces. Go, hey, here you go, bow, and, and the kid's dead, and you have a school shooting. But uh, yeah, I believe this is. Probably the best course of action. Uh, yes, yes, I believe this is probably the best course of action because the other course of action, which is the one being pushed by mainly Democrats, although some Republicans in Congress, along with the news as a as a whole, with very few exceptions there, that option that's being pushed as though it was the common sense, you know, common sense gun control. That option, which is being pushed, is not going to work. Because it already hasn't. I mean, again, 
going back to that Buffalo shooter, um, Buffalo, New York, New York already has extremely stringent gun laws. So more gun laws aren't going to stop these things from happening when, especially when he just, the shooter just demonstrated that gun control did not save you, right? It, it didn't, it didn't work. Gun control is a failed policy. That's what it is. It, it hasn't protected anybody. It's just made people more vulnerable. As I brought up when I talked about it the first time when the shooting was new, shooters go where they feel comfortable that they won't be shot back at. And it happens every time. That's why they target places like schools, malls, and, and concerts, and what have you, grocery stores. That's why they go to those places instead of the gun range, the police station, the military base, the the local army reserve center, the re- army recruitment center. They don't go to those places. They, they go to the places where they feel confident that they won't be harmed back while they're committing these atrocious crimes. And plus, I, also I brought this up as well, these are criminals. Like, if you're hell-bent on killing somebody, you're a criminal. And if, especially if you actually follow through on it, you're a criminal. Criminals, by definition, break the law. So what is gun law going to do to stop them? What is the law going to do to stop a criminal? Well, as we can clearly see with current gun laws, in places where they are most stringent, Nothing. It's just a power grab. It's just an insult to our constitutional rights is what it is. So it's very interesting to see that a state in the, Uni- in the United States is going in the opposite direction. More guns in the hands of regular people instead of psychopaths. Now, we'll see what happens with shootings in Ohio and whether or not the casualty counts come down because that's the main goal here. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that more guns would mean less uh, shootings. But at the very least, we can have less deaths because the people being shot at can defend themselves. And that's the goal. That's the intention of the Second Amendment, self-defense. And I, again, will go back to what I said on the, the Buffalo shooting in uh, I keep going, buffalo shooting, but a buffalo is an animal, so I, I should just say the shooting in New York, but that's the city. But going back to what I said, when I that shooting was new, imagine if just a handful of the men in that store who were shot at and killed, imagine if just a handful of them, maybe two or three of them were armed, how differently would that situation have gone? The shooter gets one shot off, two shots off, and by the time he's popping off the third shot, he has multiple guns aimed at him now. So now he's going to get shot. So you're talking uh, at least four shots off by him, and then he's gone. Four to five shots. So you're looking at, what, two shot, two wounded, two shot, three wounded, maybe three killed, two wounded. That's, That's a far cry. From eight killed and three wounded. That's that's a massive reduction. And on top of that, the shooter's dead instead of being 
arrested really nicely and handled really gently and being fed off my tax dollars figuratively you know just you could give him a give him a, a a free bed you give him a free bed you give him th- uh, three meals a day you give him a free place to stay and a free gym membership yeah he gets shot well we don't give him any of that no no so i think ohio is moving in the right direction here this should reduce deaths if not prevent these sorts of shootings altogether because again shooters go where they feel confident they won't be shot at so if they know they're gonna get shot at the second they go up into a a, a school and start b- popping off well all the teachers gonna shoot you you go into a classroom and shoot all the teachers gonna shoot you now maybe there'll be multiple teachers in a a single classroom you never know because teachers you know how they are they just roam the halls sometimes they could be anywhere when the shooting happens so nowhere is safe in this school especially if all the especially if even the the desk lady has the has a gun too i think this is the right direction i think this is the right direction well i'm lingering on this because it uh, does concern me these shootings that keep happening and it also concerns me that the prop the proper solutions are not being you know pursued we're pursuing the failed policy of gun control instead of you know something different maybe the opposite direction like more guns in the hands of regular people who aren't insane but i'll digress that's a uh, the u.s state of ohio uh but on to the national level, though, Biden is allegedly going to beg for oil in his upcoming visit to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and this comes amid a, a string of humiliations, unnecessary humiliations. Uh, again, I, I'll, I'll never let it go. I'll never let it go. We were energy independent two years ago. We could still be energy independent if we weren't actively killing our energy industry by canceling leases for drilling on federal lands even as gas prices are about to hit six dollars a gallon i'm i'm staring down the barrel of 560 in the place where i'm living at i'm in illinois if you're in california or new england you're in a race to the bottom to see who can get to double digit gas prices first because right now we're still in the single digits. We're talking five, six, seven dollars a gallon. In California and New England, you're up to eight. You're up to seven and eight, maybe more. So, it, it, in the not too distant future, California and New England are looking at ten dollars a gallon. That is insane, and we don't need to be in this position. We really, really don't. Every the the people who don't want to acknowledge that Trump was right on economic policy and the people who don't like fracking, they'll tell you, because this is a nice and convenient excuse for them, they'll tell you it's Putin. It's Putin's war, Putin's price hikes, Putin's the reason you're paying a million dollars a gallon for gas. But if you look at countries who are producing more oil than they consume, net energy exporters, they're not paying eight and a half dollars a gallon for gas. They're not paying six, seven, eight dollars a gallon. They're not on the verge of paying double digit. Uh, <laughs> they're not on the verge of paying double digit dollar signs for their gas. 
Arabia has normal prices. Kuwait has normal prices. Iran has normal prices. The UAE has normal prices. Russia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, they have normal people prices for their oil. And in Russia's case, they're at war and under sanction and they still have normal prices. It's because they produce oil, which means that the cost of that oil is cheap at home because they produce enough to export. We produce enough, or at least we did produce enough to export, and we still could. All of those drill wells that the energy companies aren't allowed to use because they're on federal lands, the leases could get, be given back to them, and they could pick up operations again, and we could be back down to normal people energy prices in a matter of months because it would take a, a while to bring those wells back online. But we're not talking Siberia. It's, we're talking the Midwest. It, would only, it wouldn't take ages to bring these back online. The infrastructure's already built. The, the drills are already, well, drilled. Everything's in place. The, we already know that there's oil there, and they were already tapping it before. Just let them drill, and the energy prices can come back down. The gas prices here can come back down to something reasonable. Maybe even the two and a half we were looking at before this guy came along. The not orange man. The old man. The demented man. Oh, goodness. I'll take my, I'll take my orange man back. Thank you very much. We don't need to be in this problem. I'll ne I'll never let it go. I will not because it needs to be said. And the reason it needs to be said is because it's not being said enough because people keep blaming this on Putin. We killed our own energy supply. We became dependent on foreign energy uh, with Russia being among the list of countries we were getting oil from. Then the war happened and that dependency we created for ourselves came back to bite us. We don't need the war to end in Ukraine to bring these energy prices back down. We just need to drill. But environmentalists don't like that because they never like American energy. They like everything else. So they, they like they like $15 a gallon for gas, but can't reconcile the fact that it was their policy that got them there. So with that, and then we have the the, the Putin's war myth and the, the anti-Putin hysteria that has allowed people to buy into the propaganda that Ukraine is the greatest country on earth and that Putin is Hitler. So we have that insanity to deal with. So all that leads us to not addressing the actual reason why we have $10 a gallon. Uh, uh, oh, I got ahead of myself there. Why we have $6 a gallon of gas, probably 10 for some places in the near future. It's our own lack of production. We could be benefiting from these skyrocketing oil prices if we were producing what we were producing in 2019. These ridiculously high prices would be benefiting American industry if we were producing oil and were energy independent. Just like it's benefiting Saudi Arabia and benefiting Russia and benefiting every oil exporting country on the planet. Except for us, because we sabotaged ourselves. You know? That's the power of domestic production. So, people could be coming to us begging for our oil. Instead of us, on our knees, begging for Arabian oil. And uh, like crying when they don't pick up the phone. And 
complaining that oh they don't want to talk to us and and oh Biden's such a, a weak he he's not strong like Trump was well what we, we forget this guy <laughs> we just just drill for the oil it's not hard I, I I'm I'm gonna let I'm gonna drop it for the rest of this episode. But um, don't be surprised if it comes back up. I'll never let it go uh, until the problem gets fixed the way it needs to. I'll never let it go. We did this to ourselves. This isn't Putin. This isn't the Ukraine war. This is us. This is all us. Um, but the U.S. and Taiwan have begun trade talks. Then there's Sweden, who is currently set to supply anti-ship missiles to Ukraine. And we'll see what they're able to accomplish. And hopefully they don't get captured before they're used. Because that'd be very handy for the Russian military, you know. It's very nice to see all this equipment being donated to the Russian military. Because uh, when Ukraine capitulates, whether that's through a negotiated settlement or through complete annexation, all this is going to Russia. Just like all that equipment we left for the Taliban. And maybe even all that money, too. Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see exactly how much goes to Russia. But I have a feeling a whole lot will. Especially with the surrenders we're seeing out of Ukraine were thousands. The Ukrainian military is surrendering by the thousands. Surrender means handing over your equipment and disarming. And when you disarm, that means the enemy combatants get all of your stuff. So all this equipment that the Ukrainians are getting from the West, well, if they're surrendering, well, and then it's going to go to the Russians. If they capitulate, it's going to go to the Russians. If the Russians seize it, it's going to go to the Russians. And if none of that happens, it's going to get destroyed in an airstrike or a missile strike. So it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see where all this equipment ends up going after the war. Because that, that's always the, that's always the oh, well, we, we weren't focused on that. And then some, some new terrorist group pops up somewhere with all this conveniently well-armed with American equipment. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Well, these are Nazis we're dealing with here, so I wouldn't be surprised if they just spawned a terrorist group in the heart of Europe and started causing problems. And then we use that as a justification to stay. We'll, we'll see. We'll really see. But Sweden's supplying anti-ship missiles to Ukraine. Russia, in a great shock to me, has allowed for a humanitarian corridor on the Black Sea for Ukrainian grain to pass through their blockade. Now, this probably involves them manually inspecting every ship that goes through so that it's just grain and not, you know, weapons and people. But Russia's going to allow it. Uh, I'll be honest. I was not expecting this. I openly stated that I believed Russia was going to do the opposite because this is a siege war. But they've allowed it to happen. I guess they're, they've allowed themselves to be swayed by the concerns of everyone who's going to starve to death by the the lack of Ukrainian wheat. So, eh, humanitarian siege warfare. It's a, it's a strange almost paradoxical thing, but we're witnessing it and it catches me off guard still. Uh, I mean, uh, oh, I mean, who am I getting? We we all thought we were going to get Blitzkrieg and we got the Russian steamroller. So, I I don't put it past the Russians to have more surprises in store for even me, someone who believes they're going to win. So, yeah, I, I was wrong. We'll, 
we'll see what else the Russians have in store for this war that they're, well, that they're winning, and how exactly they go about their victory. Although I have, I have a good idea of what they plan on doing when the war is over, though, as Putin has told us basically, not so not uh directly, but it's alluded to, uh, and we'll we'll get to that when we get to the meat of this episode, and we'll get to that in just a moment. All right, it's time to get into the meat of this episode. So we're gonna start with Korea, uh, where the U.S. and South Korea have fired eight missiles into the East Sea in a show of force to the north and this comes after uh, the north was supposedly launched multiple ballistic missiles into the sea themselves and the sea we're talking about is the body of water between korea and japan it's sort of like korea on one side japan on the other and then you have little you have russia at the north that sea specifically so they're they're firing missiles into this as a show of force the koreans fired seven the U.S. fired one. So, a game of brinkmanship, uh, I suppose. Uh, but I, w- I would say that this is the, the U.S. sabotaging the rapprochement that's been happening between the two Koreas. Because um, when, when Trump was in office, we had direct talks between the president and North Korea. Uh, Trump's gone. And all of a sudden, we're right back to where we were in, say, 2014. Where, oh, North Korea's firing missiles, or is this going to be World War Three? Is this going to be World War Three? War on the Korean Peninsula. Kim Jong-un, the, 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 fourth, the world's fourth largest army. And all this, this hype for what, what would be the worst conflict we've ever seen. Without it going nuclear. Which it could. All this hype for war is what we're seeing sort of being rebuilt as before we had the chance for peace and even reunification. And I still think that's the general trend that we're going to be heading into. And I don't know how, how much the U S can sabotage the, the stroke of goodwill that we managed to get during the Trump years, uh, where the two Koreas were talking to each other, uh, intermittently, not, not like, loving siblings but enough to where you could have reasonable dialogue to avoid killing each other uh, senselessly i i even brought up the prospect of eventual korean unification through some type of confederation or perhaps even a constitutional monarchy just throwing it out there just putting ideas out there I don't know how this whole thing's going to work out. Maybe North and South Korea just stay separate forever. Uh, or at least for the rest of the century. Who knows? We, we, we really don't know. But what we do know is that they don't need to be at constant odds with one another. Uh, it's a, they're in a frozen conflict. But that conflict doesn't need to be quite as Cold War-y as it was for most of its prolonged history. But alas, we're back to 2014, where it's all hype for war, and uh, North Korea firing ballistic missiles is, uh, into the, the sea right next to them is somehow a threat to the United States, because everything is somehow a threat to the United States. We're, we're supposed to be the strongest country on the planet, but everything, everywhere, done by anybody is a threat to the United States. Well, that, when, when oh, goodness, I'm tripping over my words... 
But when you really think about that dichotomy, where we're, we're the greatest, the biggest, baddest, but these minor acts of aggression, these minor acts of passive aggression even, are somehow threats to the United States, well, those two are not compatible beliefs. Either we're strong, or we're not. Because if, if we're as strong as we say and do very much like to believe we are, and uh, I myself am included in that, if we're as strong as we say and believe we are, how does North Korea firing ballistic missiles into the, into the sea to the east of them threaten us? We're not in Asia. We don't have coastline on that body of water. Not Russia, Japan, and South Korea do. But we don't. So how, how is that a threat to us? Oh, the, the North Koreans are developing inter ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and one of them has the, the potential, theoretically, of hitting the U.S. West Coast. Uh, well, okay, but we have over 5,000 nukes and each warhead on each of those missiles is stronger than the entire North Korean nuclear arsenal. So, uh, how is this a threat to us? Uh, uh, Britain and France have a couple hundred nukes themselves. China has nukes, Russia has nukes, Israel has nukes. But, and that's another thing. There, there's this selective fear, this very, very selective fear of nuclear weapons only for the new countries that have it, like Iran. We're, we're obsessed about the Iran nuclear deal. Israel's not a part of any treaty binding them in, in terms of nuclear weapons. We're afraid of Iran having nukes. Israel fights wars and invades its neighbors on a daily basis. Not, not with land troops, but with their air force. They do air raids into their neighbors on an almost daily basis. And they're a nuclear-armed state. Why are we not trying to get them into a nuclear deal? Yeah, and that, that's me bringing up Israel and what they do probably uh, is not probably does not pander to the the base oh, well actually actually I don't, I don't even know who my base is well I just speak my mind but people on my side of the political aisle generally don't like criticisms of Israel especially with regards to Israel's foreign policy but just comparing the two Iran who has no nukes is trusted less with nukes than Israel a country with nukes that invades its neighbors Heck, uh, you know, I wonder where they got that from. <coughs> America. Oh. Well, it's not like we've ever done something like that. Now, there's a selective fear about Russia, even though that, even with Russia, the, the fear is semi there, but it's less than, oh, North Korea. They, they have these nuclear weapons that could potentially hit the United States. Because we're supposed to believe that Kim Jong-un is crazy and insane, and that he would nuke America, but that even though Russia, uh, even though Putin is Hitler, uh, them nuking America is not being wall, given wall-to-wall -wall coverage. So there's this strange selective fear and paranoia about certain countries getting their hands on nukes when other countries who are more violent, objectively, are trusted more 
with nuclear weapons. Uh, and unfortunately, this is again the the fault of interventionist policy. America's at, at, at the top of that list of countries who violate the sovereignty of other nations on a routine basis with military. We we put the boots on the ground. Okay. We put the boots on the ground, we raid your airs, we, we raid your waters. We'll, we'll call it a freedom of navigation operation. We do all this. We are the second most heavily nuclear armed power on the planet. We do all this, but it's okay for us to have nukes. It's okay for us to put our nukes everywhere around the world. But God forbid North Korea have the, a handful of nukes. They're, they're going to nuke us. It's going to be World War Three. Oh, but Israel's okay. They, they, they invade all their neighbors all the time, but it's okay that they have nukes. Oh, but God forbid Iran ever get their hands on that. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, no. Uh, Pakistan. India. China. France. Britain. No one cares about them. No, <laughs> no, no one cares about them. It's just Iran and North Korea, and occasionally Russia, but to a much lesser degree. Than what you get with Iran and North Korea, and it's very—it's a strange thing that I've just observed. Uh, and the me talking about Korea's made me bring it up because the obsession is always over North Korea firing ballistic missiles, and its demonstration of capabilities with nuclear weapons. It's just a strange thing that I've noticed. I'm sure you've probably noticed it as well. Now that I've gotten you thinking about it, it's just a—I don't know what it is, but. Maybe it's just a, an irrational paranoia, like what we see with ev people believing that Putin is Hitler and Russia's Nazi Germany, while we actively support Nazis in Ukraine. I wouldn't put it past people. I, I don't put it past people to overlook inconsistencies of policy. I mean, I have to, I have to contend with that every day, looking at America's foreign policy. Or even even just earlier when I was uh, reading news for today's podcast, it was talking about the Biden and the Saudis with regards to oil. Uh, the the article itself was really just denigrating Biden, talking about how he was it. Um, what did they say? They said they were unrealistic. That's the word they used. It was unrealistic for any U.S. presidential candidate to promised to make a pariah out of Arabia because the U.S. and Arabia have too many uh, similarities in their foreign policy goals. And it's like, well, uh, what foreign policy? We have too many similar interests. What interests? Because Americans don't want to be in the Middle East. And if given the option, they would leave. But we're never given the option. Uh, we're given the illusion of an option. And the closest we got to actually leaving was Trump. And then he got cheated out of office. But we're not allowed to talk about that either. So, what interests? Because it seems to me, and I, I elaborate on this extensively in my anniversary episode, that the interests we're pursuing here are Arabia's interests and Israel's interests. What are American interests in Yemen? What are American interests in Iraq? Why are we occupying parts of Syria? Why is the oil in Syria our problem? Why was ISIS our problem? If we're going even further back, ISIS was never never a threat to the United States. They, what? 
what what they they have affiliated groups in Africa, and 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 that's it. The Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Well, there's your zone of conflict. Everyone in and around Iraq and Syria. And heck, Turkey was <laughs> openly aiding and abetting them by buying their oil. Heck, the Iranians barely bothered to fight them. They, they clearly didn't see the Islamic State as a threat or a danger. I'm not even entirely sure if Israel put up much of a, a fight against them. They, they were just running rampant through war-torn Iraq and war-torn Syria. It seemed to me like just another player in the Syrian civil war who happened to get bigger and stronger than anyone else and almost overtook the entire region. They wanted to establish their own caliphate. They had affiliates in Africa and primarily the the northern parts of Africa because that's where the Muslim-dominated portions of the continent. But what threat did they ever pose to the United States? Oh, that they beheaded somebody in Iraq and Syria? Wow. That's that's such a, a strategic danger to the, the United States that somebody who was in their country, effectively, got beheaded. Yeah? Uh, I, I just, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. We're at the service of other countries, is what it is. We're serving the interests of other countries. Because looking at these countries who are supposed to be our adversaries, looking at Iran and Russia and China, looking at even North Korea. Why are they American adversaries, specifically? You, you'll, you'll never get a, like a, a straight answer on that. There's always some uh, democracy, allies, or uh, uh, defending our values abroad, something along those lines. Or in the case of Taiwan, you'll get chips, which ignores the reality that if the two went to war, those chips are going to get cut off regardless of whether we're promising to defend them or not. Us being there doesn't change anything. But more along, more often than not, you'll get those emotional and very not rational or not, you know, straightforward answers as to why these are our enemies. Why why is Russia an adversary of the United States? Oh, because uh, they're we can't we can't stand. Um, the violent uh, act of violent aggression of one country upon another and violating their sovereignty. Ukraine has a right to exist. So the United States is the global superpower. Yada, 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 yada. Well, but the whole thing that led to this was NATO expansionism. And the whole thing about us protecting NATO is that we're supposed to be protecting NATO, not other countries. We didn't, we didn't even have a defense guarantee for Ukraine. They weren't an ally. We had no commitment to them. And yet we've now dished out $40 billion. Actually, $50 billion. God, almost forgot the money we gave to them before that bill. So because Russia is the adversary of, what, Poland and Ukraine, they're sudden, suddenly adversaries for the United States. Because Germany was fine to buy oil from Russia. France was even trying to improve relations with Russia. We are an ocean and a continent away from Russia. The Cold War is over. 
Russia doesn't threaten anything anywhere close to the United States. They are objectively not a threat to us precisely because they don't make themselves a threat to them, the United States. None of their interests are over here. Their interests are in Europe. So how, how does that make them a, a, a danger to the United States? It doesn't. It makes them a potential danger to their neighbors, sure. Just look at Ukraine, where they fucked up their foreign policy, and now the Russians have decided, eh, we're just going to go in. <clears throat> they're a potential danger to their neighbors, but they're also a potential friend, as was demonstrated by Kazakhstan, actually all of Central Asia, when the fall of Afghanistan happened. You have Russian troops defending every country in Central Asia. Russia de-escalated and basically put the war on hold in Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan. The Russian peacekeepers are still there, right? They protected Belarus when the West got uppity about Belarusian elections. There's fraud in Belarus, but God forbid you suggest something like that happened in the United States. Hmm. Well, but they can be a great friend or they can be a great enemy. Just ask Georgia or Ukraine or the Baltics or Finland. But are they a threat to the United States? No, their interests aren't over here. They, they haven't attacked anybody over here. They, they don't want anything over here. What they want is for us to leave them alone. But we can easily do that. They're not a threat to us. Look at Iran. How is Iran a danger to the United States? Oh boy, they're gonna they're gonna send in some some speedboats to put to cut off the the Gulf of Persia. Oh boy, they're they're, they're a real danger to the global global stability. You know, we have to make sure that that oil flows. Well, no, we don't. We have oil at home. They they can't cut us off from our oil. They're nowhere near us. Those ballistic missiles that they fire at their neighbors, they we're not their neighbor. So why why are we fighting them? Why are we aiding and abetting Israel when they conduct covert operations into Iran, killing high-level officials, assass committing high-level assassinations, high-profile assassinations, and carrying out airstrikes on Iranian allies in Syria and Iraq? Why do, why do we do that? How are they a threat to us? They're not. They're, they're barely a threat to Israel and I... Uh, I almost said Israel and Iran. To Israel and Arabia. Iranian armies aren't marching across that desert to the, the population centers of Arabia. At least not now. And even if they did, how does that affect us? Oh, wow. A major oil exporter just got taken off the market because they're at war. Wow. Now our energy that we produce can be sold to their markets. Iran is not a danger to the United States. China? Oh, oh boy. The, the losers of the Chinese Civil War. We have to defend them on Taiwan. Okay, but the United States spent 150 years not at war with China. And it was only after the Chinese became communists that we even contemplated that, oh, China's a, a dangerous threat to the United States. No, they're not. No, they're not. They're, they're really not. None of their interests are over here. Their interests are in Asia, Africa, and Europe. Like, 
we our priorities are so messed up because we we've made the mistake of thinking that the needs and wants and desires of other countries are somehow equal to and synonymous with the needs and wants and desires of the United States. Though stopping China is not an American interest. It's it's not. We don't need to have anything to do with China aside from trade. And the same goes for Russia and Iran and even North Korea should they open themselves up to the prospect. We don't need to be enemies with any of these people. We have nothing to gain from being enemies with these people. And they don't want to be enemies with us, but we make ourselves enemies of them. Because we're serving other countries. Why are we why are we at odds with North Korea? Because we're defending South Korea? Well, okay. Well Well then that that means this is South Korea's problem. They're the ones at war with the North, and even they even they want to have peace with the North. And the North is increasingly coming around to the idea. But then we come along, oh, we're going to do a military exercise and we're going to fire missiles back at them. Yeah, that, that's going to that's gonna bring peace. It's such a... Uh, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's just... It's backwards. We make problems for ourselves. And then we, we just get caught up in those problems that we forget that we made them ourselves. And it has consequences. It's consequences. You have, you see people increasingly obsessing about Russia and China. Oh, they're being they're being brought together by the US foreign policy. Well, it wasn't just the last two years of foreign policy that created this problem. We made enemies of them for the last few decades. We we've been adversaries with these people for no reason. No reason that would be good enough for America. Oh, Iran did this in the Middle East. Well, we're not in the Middle East. Oh, Russia's aggressive against their neighbors. Well, we're not their neighbors. China wants to expand into the South China Sea. They they, they want to they wanna build... Uh, we're not in the South China Sea. They want to invade Taiwan. We're not Taiwan. Taiwan's not even our neighbor. We made these problems for ourselves. Other countries' interests are not ours. But we've made the mistake of believing that their interests were ours. So Russian aggression against their neighbors, which is a problem for their neighbors, is somehow translated into being a problem for the U.S. And it's that line of thinking that gets us into these problems. Where we're fighting a proxy war against Russia and Ukraine while simultaneously look, sleeping with our eye open for the prospect of China invading Taiwan. While also in the background uh, worrying about North Korea getting uppity and maybe firing a missile at a South Korean city instead of the body of water next to the Korean Peninsula. And then on the back burner we have Israel and wondering whether or not they're going to get themselves killed by fighting all their neighbors at the same time again. These commitments are going to get us killed for no good reason. Just look at Afghanistan. What are we there for? Oh, no no one knows. Well, we were there for 20 years. So we, we know for a fact that these U U.S. interests are may or may not actually be U.S. interests. If we can just leave Afghanistan 
at the the turn of a dime with nothing lost on our part except for the equipment we chose to leave and the lives we lost over those 20 years of war well then what other conflicts do we not need to be a part of that we could end but choose not to we're gonna find out in the future and hopefully sooner rather than later and hopefully on our terms instead of the horrendous terms that we saw in afghanistan where we were routed and had to retreat but, but we'll see we'll see that's a it's a rant on foreign policy that you got out of me from korea but uh uh in better news though the rest of this uh, the rest of the episode is all good news where uh well good news for some of us but on this one good news for all of us victory i announce victory for national sovereignty because a large contingent of countries have effectively killed the WHO's pandemic treaty. Killed it. Murdered it in cold blood like it deserves to be. 47 African nations, represented by Botswana, withdrew their support for the pandemic treaty. And that, that was the, the breaking of the back for this damn thing, which should never have even been contemplated and should never have been supported, in my opinion not so humble opinion but along with those african nations uh bangladesh russia india china south africa and iran so that's the the brics countries uh yeah yeah the brics uh brazil did their own thing but they were also in opposition to this uh they also withheld their support for this and speaking of brazil they even threatened to withdraw from the who altogether if the treaty went through. So. Thank God for these people. For saving the world. Uh, just in plain terms. They've saved the world. Uh, I voiced my opposition to this treaty. And why it was a bad idea. In the last episode. Uh, but to sum that up. It's a violation of national sovereignty. Uh, the people in question being given the power. Over pandemic responses advocated for all the wrong solutions of this pandemic we have no reason if that's the sort of leadership we're going to get out of them we have no reason to surrender our power to them because some of us got it right sweden got it right japan got it right and certain states in the u in the united states got it right and and over time states gradually shifted towards the better position which was ending lockdowns the who and even the CDC on our part still to this day refuse to acknowledge that lockdowns were part of the problem, not the solution. They still to this day haven't given any actual evidence of the effectiveness of masks, no studies, no, none of that, no tests. And instead, we're, we're constantly presented with evidence to the contrary, which is never acknowledged by the people who want to have this immense power over pandemic responses. The people who got it wrong want this power and won't acknowledge that they were wrong. They don't, they don't need this power. They really don't. Just off the merits, just off their merit in their response to this, they don't need this power, let alone the it's a violation of national sovereignty. My country does not need to be manhandled by people who aren't accountable to people here these folks in the who are not accountable to anybody nobody 
Heck, Congress, we, we have a hard enough time getting Congress to be held accountable to us here. We'll see how well that, that holds up in the midterms. But we have no reason to trust these people. We have no reason to hand over the rights of our nations to these people. And they're not good. They're not even good at what they're supposedly doing. If, they, if we handed over our power to them, well, congratulations, you're going to get all the wrong responses constantly with no admission of wrongdoing when they're proven wrong. They're just going to pretend that the... They're just going to pretend that, oh, wow, we, we discovered herd immunity after telling you it didn't exist for two years. Oh, isn't that, isn't this great? Isn't this groundbreaking? No. Get, get away from me. Get the hell away from me. But that, that's a, a summarization of my stance on the, the damn pandemic treaty. We don't need it. We don't need it. They don't need that power, and I don't trust them with it. I barely trust my government with that power. Uh, so, yeah. But thank goodness all these countries said no in stunning fashion and very effective fashion. So they've saved the world in no no withheld terms. But it's it's nice to see countries who have leadership that actually value the sovereignty of their countries. Because when I look at the leadership we have today in the United States, uh, two years ago, it was a little bit better. Because we had we had the orange man two years ago, but now I look at the people in charge now and I go, oh brother, what new fuck up will they do today? <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure that's the sentiment of most of America at this point. Although a lot of people thought they were gonna get better uh, back in the elections, uh, uh, even yeah, that that buyer's remorse is something fierce. But I don't have buyer's remorse. I'm still waiting on my refund. <laughs> Well, well, they're they're waiting for their refund. Uh, I'm voting. I'm waiting for my package to come in. I I, I voted for the orange man. Uh, I'm I'm still waiting for my uh my order to come in. I, I'd like a an update on uh, where it's at. Uh, just just checking in. Just checking in because you know I, it's it's been two years now. It's just just uh, a really long time to be waiting for a package. I mean, no 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 yeah. But anyway. <laughs> It's nice to see countries that value the sovereignty of their nations. I cannot say that my current administration values our sovereignty. Uh, from their energy policy, to their foreign policy, to their let's just print money policy. And we're not even getting stimulus checks anymore. They're just they're just printing money. Uh, where's it going to? We, we don't even know. We can't even give the excuse that it's going to a stimulus package. Where's it going to? We don't know. We're, we just we just handed over uh, fifty something billion to Ukraine. Uh, we, we have more on the way. I I just saw it. He wanted this man wants another seven hundred seven hundred million dollars to go to Ukraine after just giving them an additional forty billion dollars on top of the thirteen billion we already gave them. It's insane. It's insane. It's, if, if these people would sell our souls in a matter of seconds. I, they definitely don't need to be signing anything with, that hands over our sovereignty to other people who have even more wacko beliefs than they do. Well, no, 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 no. We, we don't need this. But thank thank God for the BRICS. Thank God for Africa. Thank, <laughs> thank God for these countries. 
who are supposed to be our adversaries, but I guess they have their their shit together and that they, you know, the sane are always the adversary to the insane, so I guess that makes them our enemies and uh, what what have you. But it, this is something that I genuinely envy about these countries too, is that they they know what they want, or at the very least their leadership knows what they want. They have clearly defined interests. China wants Taiwan, the South China Sea, and massive trade network with the massive body of land that is Eurasia, with an extension in Africa. That that's what they want. They want something that makes sense for China. They they want to not be vulnerable to sea lanes. And they want all the Chinese territory back, which means Taiwan. And they want control over their most vital trade lane, which is the South China Sea. They want control. Say what you will about your what, whether you think that's a good idea or not, whether you agree with it or not. I don't think it's a nice thing to do, to invade other countries, to want to dominate this body of water that clearly belongs to multiple countries. But at the very least, you know why they want to do it. Why does why does America want to defend Taiwan and go to war with China, our second biggest trade partner? Second biggest trade partner. Well, why would we want to do that? Why would we want to screw ourselves over by, and bleed for a country that we don't even recognize as a country? We don't even recognize the government of Taiwan. So why would the United States want to do something so stupid by getting into a war with China? Why would we want to do that? I, I can't explain it to you. I, I can't. Well, I well, actually, I can. I've explained it multiple times. But it's clearly not in America's interest to do. So why would we go through with it? Who knows? <clears throat> Ideology and pride. Ideology, pride, and prestige is the best way I can sum it up. Why do we want to defend Europe? The war is over. World War II is over. The Cold War is over. Uh, but we're still there. Why are we expanding NATO? Oh, just because just we want to do it? Okay, well, uh, yeah. well, we've created problems now. Why do we have over 800 military bases around the world? When we're, when we're in a budget deficit every year, why are we still maintaining 800 military bases around the world? These are overseas military bases. Why, why are we doing that? I can't tell you. But again, this is what I envy about the countries like this. They value their sovereignty. They know what they want. They know what their interests are. And they, they don't concern themselves with things that aren't concerning to them. It's It sounds strange to say something so simple, that say something so commonsensical. But it, it, it's the common sense that I envy. Like, again... You don't have to agree with what they want to do. You don't have to agree with Russia's strategic designs for Central Asia and Eastern Europe. You don't have to agree with that. You don't have to agree with them invading Ukraine. You really don't. To, but you can see why they would do it. You know why they would do it. Their frontiers are vulnerable. And they had a country that was threatening to join a hostile military alliance and if that happened well then a war with ukraine would mean a war with all of nato so cut to the, 
cut to the chase, get to the war with Ukraine first, and boom. We, we, we know why they would do it. They've been protecting the rebels in eastern Ukraine this entire time. and They've been effectively a part of the war, so they've just joined. We You know why they would do it. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to agree with Iran expanding its sphere of influence across the Middle East to know why they would do it. The United States destroyed all the countries in Iran's periphery. So now they can expand their influence and give themselves a buffer from this hostile militarist state that commits high-profile assassinations of them on a regular basis, and that country being Israel. You don't have to agree with it to see why they would do it. And I envy that in these countries. I wish we could have that. And now, what that would look like for us would be radically different than what it would look like for them because we're an ocean away. Things that make sense for us to do would almost inevitably lead to isolationism because we don't need to be in Europe or Africa or the Middle East or Asia. Cold War 2.0 doesn't need to exist if we were actually pursuing American interests. And I, I, I envy that about these countries. I really do. But hopefully, sometime soon, we too can have competent leadership that at the very least knows what America needs in a foreign policy sense, which is to pull back from commitments, not not try to do all this bluster and, and reassure allies. No, it's it's time to cut back on some of these commitments. We're overextended, and by committing to more countries as, as a, a show of strength every time uh, if, if every time a country you don't like does something and your response to that is to engage in brinkmanship, well, eventually you're setting yourselves up for disaster. We are setting ourselves up for disaster. If every time China does something, we respond with the threat of force, well, what happens when the threat of force is no longer a sufficient threat? You're going to get war, and we're overextended. We can't fight that war. We're going to lose. We just lost in Afghanistan. What more do you want from me? What more do I have to say? We're expected we're going to win a war against China, a modern naval power? We're expecting to win a war against Russia, a modern land power? These are peer powers, not bums in a desert with AK-47s. These are, these are armies of millions strong. Forget the... The 75,000 Taliban fighters, these are armies millions strong. And we're, we, we couldn't even beat the Taliban. We're expecting that we're going we're gonna to beat the Russians in Ukraine, flat, wide open terrain. We're expecting to beat the Chinese in Taiwan, well within the range of all the, every missile they have. These are losing battles. Why would we get ourselves into these? Who knows? Who knows? I can tell you it's not in our interest to do, but we're in them anyway. So hopefully one day we can get uh, people who understand America's strategic position and take full advantage of it. Isolationism is, and I will say again, the one true ideology. But now we'll move on to dreams, uh, specifically Putin's dreams of Russia in the 2020s. 
Now, what does Putin have planned for Russia in the 2020s? Well, Russian President Vladimir Putin, in an address to the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, spoke about what he plans for the Russian economy. He said that the 2020s would be a time to strengthen its economic sovereignty. Uh, there we go again, valuing sovereignty. It'd be a time to strengthen Russia's economic sovereignty. He said Russia would speed up the development of infrastructure and key technologies. And those key technologies probably being construction technology and pipeline technology, things that Russia's really, really good at. And maybe even chips, microchips. We'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. Uh, didn't elaborate too much, but we can sort of take guesses. Now, Putin's plans for the country uh, are also to establish its own financial systems because they got cut off from SWIFT, although they are part of SIPS, uh, which is has about three times the trade flow in dollars. That's the, the Chinese counter to the SWIFT financial system. It gets more volume and capital going through it on a daily basis so it's actually better for russia to be a part of that but they want their own financial systems so that they can you know be have economic sovereignty putin also went on to say that russia's economy is going to depend more on private initiatives and that was interesting because lately all you see is what this government is doing what that government is doing oh this government's embarking on this project Russia's going to be relying on private initiatives. So we'll see what, what they're able to do. Uh, especially in the Far East. Well, it looks like Russia's going back to its roots here. Well, they have government direction and private initiative. So after that came prom a promise of transparency and international cooperation. So that probably means infrastructure projects that go beyond their borders into other countries. Uh, and this is probably going to allow them to work in tandem with the Belt and Road while also pursuing their own initiatives. So essentially they're positioning themselves to benefit from the geopolitical designs of their what would be their biggest rival in the region. Something we could also do with a trade a major trade policy. But um th this is what Russia is doing and they're positioning themselves well for not just the 2020s, I would argue for the rest of the century doing something like this. And with that, I can say that Russia is no longer worried about Ukraine. Uh, Putin, at the very least, with what appears to be the support of the rest of the Russian government, they're already focused on Russia's future with a heavy emphasis on economic development. And with that, I should also reiterate that this economic development is going to include the vast swaths of land that Russia has seized from Ukraine. And that's just the land that they already have, with more likely still on the way, as the war with Ukraine could potentially result in the total annexation of Ukraine. And that's where I believe this is heading. Now, far be it from me to still be surprised for, by the Russians. They can still surprise me, alright? But I'm... The reason I say it's probably going to end that way is because I'm not, I'm not sure whether or not Ukraine's going to go for the negotiated settlement. Because if they go for the negotiated peace now, Russia will probably either stay where they are or they'll take Odessa. They'll take Odessa, maybe everything east of the Dnieper, and then leave Ukraine alone. Right? Maybe that's what they do. 
maybe they stop exactly where they are. Although I think that's that would be an untenable position in the long term, especially if Ukraine does end up joining NATO, and in violation of which and whatever treaty they actually get, because I'm pretty sure in whatever treaty Ukraine signs, if they sign it, it's gonna have a provision for Ukrainian neutrality. Uh, now I've laid out in the beginning of this conflict. I don't think. I don't think it can end. In a negotiated settlement. Now that's obviously the hope that it does. So that people can stop dying. But I, I don't see the strategic problems that would be resolved from a negotiated settlement. I mean, Ukraine had a, an agreement with Russia and with the West where it was going to stop shelling the Donbass. It was going to have direct talks with the leaders in the Donbass. And they were going to formally reintegrate with autonomy for the Donbass. They were going to demilitarize and dearm so that the two could come together again. They, And for eight years, they reneged on that agreement, which was a treaty that they signed. So them flagrantly violating and disregarding that treaty for eight years, which led to the conflict because their constant attacks on the Donbass is what ultimately led Russia to step in in the first place. Uh, that combined with the threat of them joining NATO. They've demonstrated for eight years that they won't, they don't value treaty obligations. So how can you trust Ukraine to honor any new treaty obligation you sign with them? How can they be trusted? What, you're going to sign the treaty and then they immediately rearm? I mean, what would they do? How can you trust these people who you literally just fought a war with because they refused to honor a different treaty obligation? I don't see how Russia could ever trust Ukraine to honor new treaty obligations after what Ukraine just did for eight years. I don't see it. You, How, how are you going to be able to trust that Ukraine won't join NATO after the war? Because they'll have a really good reason to do that after you invaded them and destroyed their military. Now they're weak militarily, and you're stronger than you were before. And you being Russia, you're stronger, and Ukraine's weaker. They have even more reason to join NATO. Now they're weak. They need protection now. So they have, on top of you not being able to trust the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians have even more reason to do the things that you didn't want them to do. Is like joining NATO, joining the EU, building up that military infrastructure that you that Russia doesn't want them to have. Ukraine, courtesy of Russia's invasion, has even more reason to seek those things. So how do you how are you going to be able to trust them? I don't. It, I wouldn't. I'll just say it flat out. I wouldn't trust them with a treaty. Why would they be neutral? They're going to fear you for the rest of their natural lives. And they're going to turn to your enemies. They're going to turn to NATO. They're going to turn to the EU. They're going to turn to the United States. And they're going to, they're going to do their damnedest to slight you. They're going, to, they're going to be revisionists. They're not going to accept the settlement. Because none of them want to accept losing land. They're, they're going to be revisionists. 
And that's going to lead to further conflict. Now, Russia can play that to their advantage and just annex Ukraine later. But that would defeat the purpose of fighting the war now, especially with the stated aim of denazification. Well, how can you denazify Ukraine if they're still a state and they still have sovereignty and you're not going in there with your troops and your people to round up their leaders for this denazification? Whether that's through a trial or just through straight up executions. How can you denazify Ukraine if you do not put their leaders in handcuffs and take them to some sort of tribunal? How can you? You can't. You can't. So then your war aims were a lie, but you're using victory to cover up the lie. So on a number of levels, a negotiated settlement doesn't seem likely to me, at the very least, that the intention is to end the conflict, you know, and end the fighting that comes with the conflict. It seems to me that annexation is probably the way that this is going to go. And that's before I get into Ukraine probably not surrendering in any way, shape, or form. I, I don't think that they will. But it's looking like they're talking about maybe doing it. But, uh, I, again, Ukraine's the wild card here. I don't know what they're going to do. And the Russians are still surprising me, so I, don't, uh, I have less of an idea of what they're going to do than I did before. But given the forces at play, given the, the issues at hand, the negotiated settlement does not seem to me like it's going to resolve those issues and we're going to end up with more fighting later on. I think Ukraine gets annexed. That's what I believe. But while that'll be terrible for the Ukrainians, it'll be great for Russia. Because in this talk about economic development, they're going to have all the land that they took from Ukraine, which by the end of the war could mean all of Ukraine. And that means all that coal, all that rare earth, all that natural gas, and all the arable land, and all the production and industry of Ukraine will become Russian. And it will be developed by Russia as per Putin's plans for economic development. There's no way Russia's going to pass up an opportunity for economic development in Ukraine. That's historically been one of their most valuable possessions. There's no way they're going to pass it up. It would also pacify the people who are upset by rebuilding instead of leaving it as a ghetto. And then Russia's economy grows from the, product, the productivity of the Ukraine under Russian management. And when all this comes to pass, it'll make what I've observed even more evident. And that observation is that the Putin's war myth, uh, well, it's a myth. And it will be remembered as a great historic blunder and oversight on the part of analysts and pundits the world over. And what the Putin's war myth is, is it's this notion that Putin, with legitimacy issues, poor health, a coup being plotted against him, he went to war with Ukraine in some, some last-ditch effort to fulfill his grand design to... He rebuild the Soviet Union, thus shoring up support at home and fulfilling his, his, his great dreams just in time to avoid demographic collapse in Russia proper. It's, it's this great delusion, and you'll see it when you listen to pundits and experts talk about it as though Russia's the one with legitimacy issues. Half of America thinks the election was stolen, right? 
and even more of Americans think there was funny business that went down with the election. If anybody has legitimacy issues, Biden does. But no one talks about his legitimacy issues. We're talking about Putin, who got, as far as we know, uh, almost 90% support from the population of Russia when he went to war with Ukraine. It was about 87%, I think. So, a general sentiment in favor of his war with Ukraine. War usually diminishes your popularity. At the very least, over time. His popularity, if anything, went up when he went to war with Ukraine. On top of what it was. Where's the, the legitimacy issues? It's, it's not there. Putin is just a man who leads a country that exists. And that country happens to be pretty content with having him be their leader. That's just the facts. But the Putin's war myth, where everything is on Putin, and Putin is responsible for literally everything that happens, uh, the, the Putin's price hikes, uh, Putin's miscalculations, uh, Putin's ministry, Putin's dreams, it, this obsession with Putin as, uh, the, as though he were this, just a, the orchestrator of everything happening in this war, as though... Uh, now that I think about it, it's, it's like a, a cult of personality, except instead of the people that Putin is governing having that cult, it's the people who oppose him that have the cult. The cult of personality is among us, the people who oppose Putin, and the people who think he's Hitler. This is the cult, and he's the personality. It's so bizarre observing this, but... As I said, when it, it when it becomes, uh, when this becomes so unavoidable, the fact that Russia got stronger from this war, not weaker, when that becomes unavoidable, this this myth will go down in history as a blunder, a delusion, a great delusion. Plus, not to mention. Russia is not the only country going through a demographic crunch. All of Europe has a demographic inversion going on right now. All of them are going to have shrinking populations right along with the Russians, which is usually strangely overlooked when talking about Russian demographics. All of Europe is about to go through that same inversion, but check this out. The Russians are about to nab a couple tens, a couple ten million people, 10, 20, maybe 30 million people, because a lot of Ukrainians are fleeing. They're, they're about to get a bump in their demographics. Uh, but even without that, Russia has 144 million. There are 144 million Russians living in Russia. And only 83 million Germans living in Germany, 67 million French living in France, and about 38 million Poles living in Poland. Russia has more room to fuck up than they do. And they're already going through a demographic recovery effort. It's going to take a while. But they're doing it. Europe hasn't even started. And war, victory in war, usually, usually bumps up those birth rates so we could see a baby boom in Russia when the war is over.
Especially if they end up with the whole damn thing. And the whole damn thing being all of Ukraine. So, even with regards to demographics, Russia's looking pretty good. Their, their power relative to Europe will remain at least as the, the same as it was before. And probably even greater, because they command the resources. They're stronger now. They're, they're independent economically. They've, they've been broken off from the SWIFT system. They've become unsanctionable through their own economic sovereignty. And that sovereignty is only going to get stronger. So I, it is my belief that Russia, or, yeah, that Russia will walk away from this stronger. And that Putin will have his dreams fulfilled for Russia in the 2020s. Potentially even that Soviet Union dream. But alas, that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Ah, the world is changing, folks. But we will have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.